The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we are in search of lost memories. We'll speak with Mike McCluskey about how memories are formed and how you test the remaining capabilities of someone with severe amnesia. Then we'll speak with Michael Lemonick about his new book, The Perpetual Now, a story of memory, amnesia, and love, about Lonnie Sue Johnson, whose memory loss makes her, in some ways, another HM. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a science writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. Until we can't remember for the life of us where we left our keys, most of us tend to take our memories for granted. We don't ever question that we'll remember how to do our jobs or who our loved ones are. We assume we'll always know how to drive a car and feed ourselves. But memory under certain circumstances can be a very fleeting thing. I'm here today with Michael McCloskey, a professor of cognitive sciences at Johns Hopkins University. He studies people with cognitive deficits, including those with losses of memory, and he has worked with a patient named Lonnie Sue Johnson, who lost her memory to a severe viral infection. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Now let's start with what might seem to be a basic question. What is memory? Well, that's actually a very hard question. When we think about memory, we usually think about remembering our personal experiences, things that happened to us, and maybe events that we've read about or seen on TV or heard about. But memory is actually much more all-encompassing than that. Everything that you know, all your general knowledge, all the things you know how to do, everything that really makes you you uh, requires memory. When you experience things, your brain changes so that it stores some information about that. And we draw upon this information constantly in our daily lives, not only when we're remembering what happened to us, but when we're reading a word, we're relying on knowledge of things that we learn. When we add two numbers, we're relying on things that we learn. When we drive a car, we're relying not only on our knowledge about the rules of the road, but also things we learned about how to make a turn smoothly or how to bring the car to a stop without throwing our passengers forward. And memory isn't just important for uh, recalling things for your present. It's also very important for planning the future, right? That's right. Whenever we're making plans, deciding what to do, deciding how to act, we're relying on things that we have learned and things that we've experienced throughout our lives. So we don't just exist in the moment, we exist in the context of all our past experiences, and those guide our um, behavior and decisions going forward. Now, what happens when we learn something new and our brains remember it? What do scientists know about what happens when we form a memory? Well, you've brought up a good point, and that is that memory is not just about recalling things that happened in the past. We have to also create those memories to begin with, so that when we see something or hear something or think about something, we have to store away information in our memories so that we can use it in some way later on. Uh, then we have to keep that information available in our memory so it's still there if we need it at a later time. And finally, we have to dredge it up later when we need to use it, whether that involves explicitly recalling some fact when we need it or drawing upon our knowledge about how to perform some skilled action like hit a tennis ball or 
drive a car. And these things uh, can go wrong. Memory can go wrong at any of these points so that someone whose brain has been damaged in a way that affects areas that are important for memory may have difficulty creating new memories to begin with. So they may be aware of their experiences, yet their experiences don't leave the traces in memory that they should. Or someone who has previously learned something stored away in memory may later have trouble dredging it up. We all occasionally have trouble remembering things that have happened to us or facts that we've learned. But when the brain is damaged, someone can have a great deal of difficulty recalling things that were previously very well known. And are there parts of the brain that are specifically very important to particular aspects of memory? Yes, there are, although we're still trying to sort out what different parts of the brain are important and what they do. One part of the brain we know is very important is a structure called the hippocampus that lies deep within the brain. And this structure seems to be very important, at least for forming new memories and perhaps also for recalling memories that uh, we've already stored. One way we know about that is from a very famous and unfortunate case of a man who was referred to as H.M. for many years. Uh, he underwent surgery back in the 1950s as a treatment for epilepsy in which the surgeon removed parts of his brain that were giving rise to epileptic seizures. And the surgery was successful in reducing his seizures, but it left him with a very profound memory deficit. Uh, the hippocampus on both sides of his brain had been removed. And after that time, HM was essentially unable to create new memories. He was kind of stuck in the moment there and remembered very little of anything that happened to him since the time of his surgery. And many of us probably think there are only a couple of kinds of memory. Uh, most of us think in terms of short and long-term memory. But there's there's far more than that, right? There certainly seem to be. We're not entirely sure how to carve up the memory domain. But we do believe, on the one hand, there's a very basic distinction between our long-term memories where we store information for very long periods of time. This is where we would hold our general knowledge, our knowledge of, of what happened in our lives and so forth. And there are also much more temporary memories. While we're doing things, while we're working on things, we need to hold information in a very available state, but only very briefly. So as I'm talking to you, I have to keep track of what we're talking about. Uh, when I'm listening to a question you're asking me, I have to hold on to the words as you're saying them so that I can put them together in order to understand them. Or if I'm trying to do a simple math problem in my head, I have to hold on to the various numbers I'm working with and the intermediate results that I've generated. We tend to call these working memories, and they can have something go wrong with them independent of having something go wrong with long-term memory. But even within long-term memory, there seem to be a lot of distinctions among different types of memory. And we know this in part because we can see that when the brain is damaged, someone can have difficulty with one type of memory but not other types of memory. One distinction that's been drawn is between your knowledge of facts, things that you can talk about, things that you can think about, knowledge that's really explicit, that you're very aware of it, and less explicit knowledge, more implicit knowledge that underlies your ability to do things. 
your knowledge of how to ride a bicycle or how to drive a car, or if you're able to play tennis, how to how to hit ground strokes and things like that. And so that type of memory may be different from your memory for facts. And as we study memory more, we're thinking that there may be even more distinctions. But we have a long way to go before we're going to understand these things really fully. Now, part of the way scientists understand memory has been by studying people with relatively normal memory. What are some of the tests? How do people go about studying memory in someone? Well, that's a very big question, and it depends on what type of memory is being studied. Uh, scientists who are studying working memories do things like give people short lists of words or digits and try to have them recall them right away. Or if they're studying working memory that people use in understanding language, they might give them sentences to try to understand that would either be simple or very complex. Uh, there are just a variety of procedures that can be used there. In studying long-term memory, there are different types of methods. Some of them rely on testing people on knowledge they've gained outside of the research context. So we could test people's knowledge of public events or people's knowledge of famous places or famous faces. Or we could do experiments where we present information to people and ask them to learn it and then test them later on. And all these methods have been used for, you know, well over 100 years in memory research. And I was particularly wondering about tests for things like skill-related memories. You mentioned riding a bike or hitting a tennis ball versus declarative memories, you know, people remembering specific events or people. How do you test for those types of memory? Well, that's an interesting question, too. For for the most part, researchers haven't done a lot of testing of skills themselves. Uh, sometimes they've worked with very simple skills in the laboratory to see if, say, someone who has a very severe deficit in remembering explicit facts can nevertheless uh, remember skills. They might do things like uh, one thing that was done with the patient HM was a mirror drawing task where you're asked to trace over a figure, which is pretty easy to do, except in this task, you can only look at the figure in your hand through a mirror. And so every time you need to move to the right, it looks like your hand is moving to the left, and that can be difficult at first. But as people practice that task, they get better at it. And what was found is that HM was able to improve his performance on this task over time, indicating that he was learning how to do the mirror writing. But at the same time, he didn't remember having done it. So the researchers worked with him over a period of several days, and each day when he came back in, he would do better than he had done the day before, but at the same time saying, I've never done this. What is, you know, what's this task about? So we do work on some occasions with skills, and sometimes researchers have even worked with more complex skills. Uh, we, among others, have worked with people with memory deficits uh, who happen to be musicians on their ability to play music, even when they have memory problems, or to learn new music. So that would be an example of where a complex skill will be studied. The bulk of the research, though, with people who have memory deficits has been with the more explicit or declarative type of knowledge, memory for your life experiences or memory for facts that you can talk about. And you particularly worked on a 2016 paper studying Lonnie Sue Johnson. She suffered a severe infection that damaged her hippocampi, leaving her, leaving her with very few memories of her previous life and almost no way to form new memories. Um, Lonnie Sue bears a very strong similarity to patients like HM. 
uh, in terms of what she has lost. What can scientists learn from studying people like her? Well, Lonnie Sue is a very unfortunate what happened to her. Lonnie Sue is a very accomplished and uh, lovely person. She was a, a very accomplished illustrator and artist. Uh, she was a, a good amateur violist. She was a private pilot who owned and flew her own airplane. But unfortunately, she she contracted this viral infection that devastated areas of the brain that are important for memory. Lonnie Sue had almost complete destruction of the hippocampus on both sides of her brain, as well as some other damage. And she fortunately recovered from the infection, but unfortunately was left with very severe memory impairments. Like HM, Lonnie Sue has a very difficult time learning anything new. She doesn't remember things that have happened to her. So that uh, my colleagues, Emma Gregory and Barbara Landau, and I would visit her and do testing with her. And she was always very pleased to see us. She, she enjoyed working with us, but she really didn't remember us from one time to the next. So we would need to remind her who we were and what we were doing and so forth. As long as she was working with us and kept her mind on it, uh, she knew who we were and what we were doing. But then the next time we would come see her, she was she was unaware of having met us before. Now, what we tried to do with Lonnie Sue was to understand what had happened with her, both in her brain and uh, with respect to her cognitive abilities, her memories and other abilities. We found that her general intelligence was very much intact. Her ability to use language was very intact. She's still a lively, engaging person, definitely has a lot of personality, but many of her memory abilities were really devastated. We would expect from her brain damage that she would have difficulty learning new memories, and as I've said, she does. One thing we were more surprised about was that, as you mentioned, her knowledge of her past life and her past knowledge, uh, general knowledge, was greatly impaired. Many individuals who have damage to the hippocampus, including HM, don't seem to have such severe difficulties with things they had previously learned. But Lonnie Sue had a great deal of difficulty. Uh, she knows some things about her life. She certainly knows that she's an artist and she knows that she plays the viola. She knows her family members and so forth. Yet she remembers almost nothing else about her life. She's unable to recall any specific incident about her life. Uh, when we asked her if she had been married, and she had been married for a decade early in her life, she was uncertain about this. She was not even certain that she had been married and was unable to recall anything you know, about who she had married or when she had been married or so forth and so on. Perhaps even more surprising is that her general knowledge seemed to have been disrupted quite a bit. So some sorts of knowledge that we generally take for granted. One kind of silly but uh, still revealing test we did with her was to show her common company logos like the Golden Arches from McDonald's and ask her to tell us anything about them that she could. And even though you know most people recognize these without any difficulty at all, Lonnie Sue was severely impaired in, in remembering even the most common ones. We also tested her on some things that she was expert on. So she is an artist and she is a musician. She has a lot of knowledge about art and music. Yet when we showed her very famous paintings or played her clips from very famous compositions, things that we're sure she was familiar with before, she enjoyed seeing them and she said, oh, they look familiar, but she was almost entirely unable to identify them. 
So that's something that we're still trying to understand. Why does Lonnie Sue have such severe impairments to general knowledge, uh, even though some people with similar brain damage don't? Now, you mentioned that HM had much more in the way of remembering general knowledge than Lonnie Sue does. Um, these are both case studies, and damage to both hippocampi is extremely rare. What are some of the limitations of basically having to study a series of case studies? Well, one of the limitations is that, of course, one is dependent upon what type of cases become available. We definitely do not want this to happen to anyone. It's tragic what happened to HM, and it's tragic what happened to Lonnie Sue. But studying people like this can be very informative for understanding better how the brain works. However, as you said, cases like this are very rare, and so we're limited in that we can't just decide to go out and study you know, 20 or 50 people with damage like this. We have to rely on the very few that are available. And further, uh, the types of things that cause brain damage don't tend to respect the boundaries between brain areas we might be interested in. Lonnie Sue is a, is a very unusual case in that her hippocampus was virtually completely destroyed on both sides. The vast majority of, of people who have been studied who have hippocampal damage have only partial hippocampal damage. And so we don't know how much of what they are able to do comes from the remaining hippocampus or what comes from other parts of the brain area other brain areas, so that when we can find people who, say, have an important area that's completely destroyed, then we often can learn things a little bit more uh, definitive from them. So, for example, in studying Lonnie Sue, we can be confident that anything she is able to do is not as a result of her hippocampal functioning because she doesn't have any, whereas with someone who has only partial damage to the hippocampus, the ability to do something might come from that um, minimal retained function in the hippocampus. Now, patients like Lonnie Sue are often very coherent, um, but they're also unable to give their consent for long-term or even short-term studies, and instead their next of kin acts for them. What are some of the ethical considerations that scientists keep in mind when working with patients like her? That's also a very important question. We want to learn as much as we can through research, but it's also of paramount importance to protect the rights and to, to of the individuals we're working with and to make them comfortable. So you're correct that Lonnie Sue is not able to give informed consent to participate in research, and instead we obtain consent from her mother and her sister, who are, you know, legal guardians for her. Uh, they are very concerned, as you might expect, with making sure that Lonnie Sue is comfortable and is treated well and so forth. And so we spoke a great deal with them about the sorts of things that would be appropriate to do and the sorts of things that wouldn't be appropriate to do. And just in general, whenever I'm working with people who have impairments, uh, many of whom, by the way, are still able to give consent, but Lonnie Sue is a, is a special case. We're always careful to try to treat them as well as possible. So uh, I always try to make sure they're informed about why we're doing what we're doing. I'll give them the results of the tests if it, we want those tests to be made available to other people who are working with them. With their permission, we do that. 
We also try to make sure that although some of the tasks may be difficult and can be discouraging, we mix those in with other tasks that um, may be less challenging so that the person is not feeling just discouraged about having done a whole bunch of things that they can't do. All that having been said, though, one thing I'd like to point out is I've been very impressed and even inspired over the years by working with many people who have deficits to see how determined they are to make the best of their situation and also how willing and, in fact, excited they are about making any contributions they can to to research in hopes to help people in the future who have similar problems. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. I only wish we had more time. We've linked to some of Mike McCloskey's papers, including the paper where he studied Lonnie Sue Johnson's musical skills on the viola at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, we'll be speaking with someone else who has a link to Lonnie Sue, Michael Lemonick, about his new book, The Perpetual Now, a story of amnesia, memory, and love. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm here with Michael Lemonick the opinion editor at Scientific American, to talk about his latest book, The Perpetual Now, a story of amnesia, memory, and love. Thanks so much for being here, Mike. Well, thanks for having me here. Now, first, I was wondering if you might be willing to tell us how this book came about. It was a little serendipitous. It was very serendipitous, and I would love to tell you. Uh, so I, was, I live in Princeton, New Jersey, and I grew up here. And one day, a couple of years ago, I was walking down the street, and a woman approached me, and I recognized her immediately. Uh, she's somebody I'd gone to middle school with and high school with, and we played in the orchestra together. And she walked up to me and introduced herself. She said, hi, I'm Aline Johnson. And I said, you know, I know who you are. I mean, we've seen each other once every 10 years or so in the supermarket or something. So, of course, I remember you well. Um, and she said, have you heard what happened to my sister? And I had not. And it turns out that Aline knew I was a science writer, and she proceeded to tell me the story of what happened to her sister, which was that uh, her sister, Lonnie Sue Johnson, had a number of years earlier, six, seven years earlier, been infected with viral encephalitis, so uh, an inflammation of the brain, a viral inflammation of the brain, and that as a result of this infection, she had ended up with profound amnesia. She was in a state where she could not remember much about the past, and she had terrible good difficulty in forming new memories to carry with her into the future. And as, as she was telling me the story, a light went off very quickly. I said, oh, it's another HM. And uh, as you may know, you probably know, and many of the listeners know, HM was a man who in 1953 had his hippocampus and some of the surrounding tissues destroyed in an operation. And no one at that time knew what the hippocampus did. There were some ideas that it had something to do with, with smell, the sense of smell. And the operation was performed because epileptic seizures, very violent epileptic seizures seemed to be originating from the hippocampus. 
And so by removing them, his neurosurgeon thought he would cure the, the uh, epilepsy. But when HM came, came out of the, uh, of the anesthesia and recovered from the surgery, it became clear that the hippocampus does much, much more than that because he could now no longer form new memories and he could not remember much about the past. And this, so, so this was exactly that same story, except it was an infection rather than an operation, but it was the same tissue that was damaged, the same, uh, damage that, or the same brain damage that resulted, the same memory loss. I read about this when I was a freshman in college, in freshman psych in 1971. And and it was such a powerful story that it stayed with me ever after. I, I, I was just haunted by this idea of what HM's life must have been like living this in this present uh, without any past and, and any future, in a sense. What that feeling would have been like. It was very much the way I later would react when reading uh, essays by Oliver Sacks about people with uh, severe different kinds of brain damage and their perceptions, how their perceptions were drastically altered and made very abnormal. You know, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, he couldn't, he couldn't tell the difference between his wife's head and a hat sitting on her head and he tried to remove her head um, because he thought the hat was ugly or something. But, you know, what would it be like to have that perception? Um, so I immediately knew what she was talking about. And also as a science journalist, in later years, I had written some stories about memory, and he always came up. He he is literally the textbook case uh, for amnesia and for the role of the hippocampus in memory. And so as she was talking, I said, oh, another HM. Well, you know, that story has been told. So, yes, it's interesting, but, you know, w- w- why would I tell it again? I'm, I'm saying this to myself. And and yet, I mean, she, I always wondered what it would be like also to talk to, to HM. And she said, well, let me tell you about my sister and then – uh, and you can meet her and talk to her and see if you're interested in writing about her. And I should also add that a year prior to this or so, she had uh, she and her mother, uh, who were her sister's primary caretakers, had gone to New York to the 92nd Street Y to hear a talk by Oliver Sacks. And afterwards, they approached him and persuaded him to come down and meet the sister. And, and, and uh, in the end, he didn't write about her. He'd already written about amnesia. So this was, I mean, I love Oliver Sacks and, and his beautiful literate, literary way of, of talking about people with brain injuries. And and so I thought, well, at least I'll, I'll go talk to her and I'll find out more about this. And as I talked to Aline first to prepare me, I began to realize that this was not just the same as the story of HM. Um, it was the same kind of brain damage, but Lonnie Sue was a very different kind of patient or victim. And the reason was, well, there were several reasons. Uh, one is that she was an enormously creative person professionally. She was a, a, a an illustrator who did covers for the New Yorker and illustrations for the New York Times and many, many book covers and uh, and so she was a very well-known illustrator and very successful. Uh, another reason was that she was also an extremely good amateur viola player. She, when she was in high school, she um, was uh, allowed to sit in with the university orchestra because she was that good. She was also a private pilot. She had two airplanes and, and she actually bulldozed or had bulldozed a, a strip in her farm at her farm in Cooperstown, New York, so she could land her planes and walk to the door. So she's got, she got, she was a much more interesting character than what I understood about HM, who, because mostly of his epilepsy, never went beyond high school, uh, never had a job more challenging than working on an assembly line, never had any great achievements, because he couldn't. I mean, he was intelligent, but he, he just was, was uh, disabled by this by this epilepsy. And then he had the operation, and, and 
as a result, memory scientists, when they learned about him, neuroscientists and psychologists, he was a very rich subject for testing because nobody had been presented with with uh, this kind of, of um, memory loss before where the reason for it was so well understood. And so this was a golden opportunity to, to learn what the function of the hippocampus is and what memory still remains and, and you know, the, kind of probe the limits of, of what he could do and no longer do as a way of uh, calculating backward to see what the hippocampus specifically did. But because he was relatively limited in his lifespan and his experience, they could only do so much. Now, there was um, somebody with amnesia who had, had lived a much longer time before the damage. She was in her late 50s, so she'd had much more life experience. But she also was creative in several different areas of expertise. Um, you know, in music and in art. And uh, flying requires a certain art, but it also requires a lot of specific knowledge. And she also uh, was a businesswoman. She had her, her uh, design business, her illustration business, that is. And she'd also started an organic dairy on her farm in, in uh, upstate New York. So she just had all of this rich stuff to probe. And so the scientists who learned about her were able to test many more and still are testing many more aspects, more subtle aspects of memory. Um, so after all this conversation, I realized, yeah, this is actually a very different story and a much richer story. And I want to tell this story. So that's how I came to write the book. And she was incredibly accomplished. She could also ride a horse. <laughs> I remember. Yes, she could also ride a horse. I, mean, I don't consider that the most creative thing. But yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and she'd lived in New York City and, and had uh, friends who were, were very well-known artists and, and musicians and painters. And I mean, she just had this this incredibly, um, uh, she had a, a, a very good education. She worked as a teacher. She, she just had this rich background of experience that made her amenable to much more different kinds of testing than, than HM ever could be. And when we think of patients like HM, for example, we think of his memory going as the result of a, a kind of physical trauma. You know, his, um, his hippocampi were actually forcibly removed. And then often when we think of other neuroscience, famous neuroscience patients, for example, Phineas Gage, uh, yeah. you know, parts of his brain were forcibly removed. But in the case of Lonnie Sue Johnson, that's actually not the case. She had a bout of herpes simplex induced viral encephalitis. What is that? And, and how common is it? Um, it's, it, the virus itself is incredibly common. Most of us ha actually have it in our systems already. I, I'm sorry to tell you this, but, but it's in our systems already. Oh, thanks, Mike. Yeah. Most of the time, most of the time, uh, the worst symptom it causes is cold sores. And that happens to people, uh, when they're under stress and, and so the virus manifests itself. But, um, every so often, and it's, it's very rare, only a few thousand cases a year. In the, in the United States, uh, the virus migrates to the brain, and when it gets there, it begins attacking those very same tissues that Henry Mollison had forcibly removed. The virus is drawn to the to the hippocampi, as you say. There are two of them, which which should be uh, I should have mentioned earlier. We have one on each uh, in each hemisphere of the brain, and so it goes right right to that region and begins destroying tissue right there. And so um, it's essentially very similar to the surgery that happened to HM, um, but it's just a, a different vehicle. And I think when many people think about the hippocampus, they think of it as kind of the seat of memory. But I also think most people, certainly before I began to study neuroscience, I didn't know that there was more than one kind of memory. But there are many kinds of memory. 
Well, there, there are many, many kinds of memory, as it turns out. And so when uh, the early testing on HM revealed um, a couple of things, first of all, that there appeared to be two, at the time they thought there were just two, uh, classes of memory, what they call declarative memory, things that you can actually talk about, um, memories that you can verbalize, and uh, then something they call procedural memory, which are, it's often informally called muscle memory. It's the idea... It's the memory of how to ride a bike or how to tie your shoes or how to do any number of sort of automatic behaviors that um, that you once had to learn and that are stored in your brain and that you can recall, but you don't recall them consciously and you can't describe them. So if, so if I said, tell me how you ride a bike, you can sort of give me an outline, get on and pedal and balance. But how, you know, what do you do when you feel yourself uh, tilting six degrees to the right? What exact, how much do you turn the handlebar to compensate? Well, you don't know that. Your body knows it. Your body automatically knows how to do it. And um, and once you've learned that, as they say, once you've learned to ride a bike, you never forget. It is like riding a bike. It is like riding a bike. <laughs> and it's and it's um, and the same is true for playing a musical instrument, as, as it turns out, when you've once you've learned to to bow a viola and finger the, the notes, it becomes automatic. You don't think, okay, uh, there's an A. Okay, that means I put the third finger down on the fourth string, and by then the whole piece would be had gone past you. No, you do it. You do it completely automatically, um, and and yet you had to learn it, and it, so it has to be learned and stored in your memory. So by by uh, doing a very clever test on HM, they learned that. While he could not acquire new declarative memories, that is, memories he could talk about, he could acquire new procedural uh, skills. And if you want, I can describe the test that they did. It's, it's pretty quick. Oh, yes, uh, the mirror test. The mirror test. So they had him uh, draw, uh, trace the image of a star with a pencil or a pen. But instead of looking at his hand and at the paper, he looked at them by way of a mirror. He couldn't see them directly. He could only see them in a mirror. And that becomes a very difficult thing to do because, you know, you get feedback by looking at where your hand is if you're doing a test like that. And when he looked and he would move his hand to the right, well, the image of his hand moved to the left. And to try and control it, he had to control it in reverse, which is almost impossible for anyone to do at first. But as you practice it, your body becomes used to that sort of reversed um, feedback and it gets easier and easier. And after a while, you can do it pretty easily. And so they did this with, with HM. They, they had him draw in the mirror. He was terrible. And they took it away and they brought it back. And he said, oh, this is interesting. I've never done this before. And he tried it again. And he tried it over and over and over again, forgetting each time that he'd ever done it before. Because his conscious memory, you know, was, was gone. He couldn't remember having done it before. But he got better. And the, the, the neuroscientist reported that after a few days, I think it was, he commented and to a point he said, wow, you know, I would think this would be really hard, but I, I'm pretty good at it. That's amazing. He did not know that he'd practiced it, but his procedural memory had learned it and had retained it. So so procedural memory is, is very different from declarative memory or explicit memory. They further learned, not just from him, actually is mostly on experiments later on, uh, on other on other amnesia victims. That our declarative memory, uh, that we can, things we can actually talk about also fall into two classes. The first class is what they call semantic memory, which is a memory for general facts, either about yourself or about your, uh, or about the world. So if I tell you Paris is the capital of France, that's in my memory somewhere. It's a general fact about the world. Uh, if I tell you I went to high school in Princeton, New Jersey, that's a general fact about my life. We also have explicit memories of specific events in our lives. So if I 
tell you when I was a senior in high school, uh, one of my close friends was named the homecoming queen and, and the football captain was named the homecoming king. And um, it, it, the celebration was in the gym and the homecoming queen was completely drunk and almost fell off the bleachers, <laughs> which is uh, true. I hope she's not listening. Um, you uh, never know. <laughs> you never know. Uh, but um, so that's a very specific memory of an event that I'm telling you in some detail. And I can tell you her name and I can tell you, you know, uh, what instrument she played in the band because that's how I knew her and, and so on. And um, so that's that's different from 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 those general factual memories. I can tell you exactly when that happened, whereas I can't tell you when I learned Paris was the capital of France. I just know it somehow. But I did learn it at one point. And what what they discovered with HM and with later patients is that his his and their semantic memories, their general memories, were relatively preserved. They were still they were still uh, damaged. But Henry could tell you uh, who was the president during World War Two and what the capital of France was and many many facts about the world but he could only remember two oh and he, and he would uh he could tell you that when he was young his parents used to take him on vacations driving along the mohawk trail which is a, a scenic highway in massachusetts western massachusetts so he had those general memories but if you said well tell us some specific event that happened on one of those trips on the mohawk trail he couldn't his autobiographical specific explicit memories were gone except for two he, he remembered two things that he could describe in detail one was at the time when he was 10 years old his parents took him up uh, sent him up in a small plane um ride at a country fair uh, they flew over hartford connecticut which is where they lived and he just he could tell you the, how the leather felt on the on the seats and what the what it looked like and he could still remember that in detail. Um, and remember, this was in the in the nineteen thirties or forties when riding in a plane was not such a typical thing. So that was that made a huge impression. The other was when he tried smoking a cigarette for the first time and and got sick. <laughs> he, he could tell you about that too, or he could while he was still alive. But but everything else was gone. He could not remember a single specific memory of any incident in his life. And how so, do H.M. and Lonnie Sue compare in terms of what they have left? Well, so 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 Lonnie Sue also has some uh, uh, general semantic memories about the past. She can tell you what town she grew up in and where she lived and the sh in Cooperstown and that she used to fly a plane. And that she was an artist, um, but she too. And I think, but I think her memory, her general memories of of facts, are much more limited than HM's were. So she had more damage to that. But like HM, she cannot come up with any explicit memories of of events or episodes. Uh, so in that way, they're very similar. Where they're dissimilar is in a way that you you could never tell with HM anyway. And that is to say that the scientists who um, learned about her in a, a kind of a serendipitous way and began doing tests on her realized they had this goldmine of of uh, of information in, that she once knew and skills that she once had, and that they could explore those. So, for example. They knew she was a musician, so first they tested her on general knowledge about music. So one test they did was to play a number of very, very familiar tunes that anybody would recognize. Happy Birthday and the Wedding March, Mendelssohn's Wedding March, and Pomp and Circumstance, which is played at graduations all the time. Um, and they played those for her and said, okay, well, what is this, what is this 
remind you of, and she actually didn't know. This is a musician who could not recognize the simplest tunes. Um, but when they asked her to play the viola, she could play beautifully. She could read music perfectly. Um, and she still had, um, she could learn a new tune that she'd never seen before and improve on it by practice. So, so you might argue and, and you can argue that this is just procedural memory. It's a, it's like HM drawing in a mirror, but, but playing an instrument and playing in tune and playing in rhythm and following the notes and using the right intonation and uh, using vibrato at the right points and playing a little louder for emphasis here and softer for emphasis there. That's a very complex task, a much more complex task than uh, than drawing in a mirror. And she improved at that task without knowing that she was practicing it. And so she had that difference from HN. And maybe he would have been able to do that too. But what that showed is that procedural memory is maybe more complex than we think, that it can come in different flavors. Um, it's not just one one kind of thing. So that was one thing that they learned. Another thing was that they... Um, they tested her on artwork. She she majored in in uh, art history in college, and they showed her twenty very well known paintings that again anyone could recognize and, and identify. Uh, and of those twenty, she could only identify the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. I don't know if that's because they were both by Leonardo, um, but for but, it, but this is a profound deficit in general knowledge for for an artist. And yet, when they showed her commercial art, including some of her own work, she unfailingly identified her own work. She said, yeah, that's mine. And it was. So what is it about her own work that makes it so much more familiar than something that's familiar to everyone? Nobody really knows yet. Moreover, they asked her to say, to tell them, um, one of the scientists did a test where she said, okay, you know, you used to draw watercolors. Tell me how you draw a watercolor. Now that's, that is in some sense general knowledge, but it's also very detailed and specific. And Lonnie Sue was able to explain in detail and accurately her mother, uh, who was still alive at the time was an artist herself. So she was there to, you know, to verify. And Lonnie Sue took the scientist through every step of preparing and painting a watercolor. Almost perfect. So again, a, a depth of knowledge that nobody imagined she would have. Um, they then tested her on aviation terminology and parts of an airplane and, you know, the steps for taking off in a plane and landing in a plane and how to compensate, compensate when the wind is blowing um, at right angles to your path. And again, she could draw on this knowledge and explicitly describe it. And that too was astonishing. So, so, you know, either she is a very unusual case or the, the, the ideas that we have about the divisions of memory and what people can and can't do uh, is too limited because it was based on just a handful of patients, none of whom had these extra skills that could be tested. I did ask the uh, the neuroscientist, well, you know, think you'll take her up in a plane to see if she can still fly. And they said, no, 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 no. That would be crazy, you know, because who knows what would happen. Uh, but they think they might test her on a flight simulator, and that would be fascinating. Um, they haven't gotten to that yet. So, Mike, most people think of the hippocampus as being kind of the seat of memory. It's kind of described that way. But you explain in your book that it's more complicated in than that. What exactly do scientists think that the hippocampus does now? Uh, what they think is that the hippocampus is well. So, so what they think is that um, there was as a, there was actually a great debate in the early part of the 1900s 
about whether memory is located in one specific part of the brain or whether it's located uh, throughout the brain? And the answer is yes. That is to say, it's both. So, so uh, when I have an experience, I might uh, it might involve sight, sound physical sensations, emotions, and the, um, all of those things enter through, you know, through different, um, senses and they are processed in different parts of the brain, the speech center and the, uh, uh, auditory center and the visual center and so on. And all of those sensations are recorded in those centers where they actually are processed. But that in order to form a coherent memory, they have to be linked together neurologically by the hippocampus. The hippocampus is uh, one analogy um, I heard was that all of these individual sensations that are part of the memory are like a like balloons, and the hippocampus ties a little bow around each set, tying them together, so that when you go to recall the memory, the hippocampus uh, it t- sends you back out to pick up all of those related experiences that were tied together, and they come back to you as a whole. So, so without a hippocampus, it's clear, it's easy to see why it's so difficult to find form new memories because it's not able to tie that bow. Uh, the memories are not consolidated into one unit. And it's also easy to see why you can't retrieve explicit memories of the past because uh, even though they were once tied together with a bow, the, the ribbon is gone because the hippocampus is gone. And so assembling them, reassembling them into uh, a coherent experience is very difficult. So I was particularly interested in your approach to this book because all of your previous books have basically been about space. Yes. You've written about the Big Bang and William and Caroline Herschel. This is kind of a big departure for you. What drew you to this? Well, a couple of things drew me to this. One, uh, one is that, again, again, I, it was a, a subject that had kind of fascinated me ever since I was in, in college and had been reinforced and, and, you know, not everybody's interested in space, although I am, but everybody's interested in, in the brain, and I also am. Uh, so, so I already had that basic sort of lay interest and a little bit of professional interest. Um, and also, I had a lot of fear because I could uh, give you right now, off the top of my head, a one-hour exposition about cosmology and the origin of the universe and dark matter and dark energy and all this stuff because Maybe next I, time. oh damn well anyway <laughs> uh, i've been um i've been writing about it so long and so I, I just kind of internalized maybe in my procedural memory the terms and how they relate to each other and if a new piece of news comes out how it fits into everything we know already whereas with neuroscience it was not that way at all um but when i heard the story it was from aline johnson it was intriguing when i met lonnie sue johnson she was intriguing she was a fascinating character uh, in her own right and and so it seemed important. Oh, well, and let's be honest. The other thing is that whenever in the past I've told people I'm writing a book about space, they say, oh, well, what's it about? And I say, well, it's about the Big Bang and the origin of the universe. They say, oh, that's really nice. That's interesting. Uh, so anyway, what's for dinner? It's hard to get uh, the general public interested in that topic unless they're already interested, whereas they are already interested in this. And I thought it would it – would, um, appeal to many, many more people. And sure enough, as I started working on it, and people asked me, well, what are you working on? I would say, well, I'm a book about amnesia. I'm working with this amnesia victim. And they would start asking genuinely interested questions and follow-up questions. And so um, it was clear that it, it would have more general appeal. And that was enough to make me overcome my terror of plunging into this field where the terms weren't familiar. And I didn't know how everything related. And I didn't know the history of, of how people had understood things. And so on, what the major issues were. 
And in fact, uh, you may remember that about a year and a half ago, we were we had a conversation about this book when I was still working on it. We did, and yeah, and still had plenty to, to go. And I knew that you were knowledgeable about neuroscience, and I was thinking, you know, how can I write a book that this person who actually knows something will read and not laugh at? So <laughs> there was just a certain amount of terror to overcome. Well, I promise I did not laugh. <laughs> oh, good. I am glad. Now, Lonnie Sue Johnson was left with no ability to form new memories. She can't live independently, and she can't really consent to things like journalistic interviews or scientific research. Right. How did you get permission to write about her? Uh, first, let me just correct you um, on one thing, because I have said what you just said and been corrected by Aline and by neuroscientists. Uh, people with this kind of damage can actually form new memories if a fact is repeated often enough, like 100 times or, or 500 times, it will finally uh, take hold. Right. And and so, in essence, they can't form new memories, not remotely. So, their, their ability to do so is like 0.01% as good as yours or mine. But it's not literally true that they can't. So, just to be precise. Um, but it's as close as, as, uh, close enough. So how do you get consent? consent? Well, uh, this, you know, how do you get consent for medical treatment of somebody who is unconscious or, or, uh, or how do you get, uh, how do you make financial decisions for somebody who is incompetent to make them? Somebody is appointed as the guardian who is empowered legally to make those decisions. And that's what happened in this case. Um, Aline Johnson, the sister, and uh, the primary caretaker for her, her sister, Lonnie Sue, has that power, the power of attorney and medical proxy and whatever all those powers are. And so she is entitled to make all decisions on behalf of her sister. Um, so where, what kind of facility Lonnie Sue will live in and where that will be and, and, uh, whether or not she, you know, how to invest her money that she made, you know, from selling the farm and all of those decisions that she can no longer make only makes for her. And very early on in this ordeal that the family went through, it was a, a terrible tragedy, a great loss. But uh, both Aline and their mother, uh, Maggie Johnson, who died in 2015 at the age of 97, by the way, uh, were her primary caretakers. And they agreed between them that this tragedy that happened to their family shouldn't be, um, should have some kind of redeeming value for the world. And they realized that, in fact, Aline had taken a number of courses in neuroscience and also knew about HM. Mm -hmm. Um, they, they decided that if Lottie Sue's condition could help, uh, contribute to scientists' understanding of how the brain works, that would be a good thing to come out of this. And so they were happy and eager to have Lonnie Sue participate in the research and for them to participate as well. Um, they actually did tests assigned by the neuroscientists where in between the formal testing sessions and they made observations and, and fed back to the scientists. Um, and if Lonnie Sue had been um, uncomfortable or upset by doing this testing, they would have stopped immediately because they really did have her best interests at heart. But it turns out that unlike many amnesia victims, Lonnie Sue was perfectly amenable to testing and both uh, conventional testing and testing in an fMRI to scan her brain as she's doing certain tasks. And she is totally at ease with all of it. Um, she enjoys it. And so uh, 
and so you know there's no um worry that they're abusing her in some way because she is clearly fine with it that much that much she can do she can express pleasure or displeasure and enjoy what she's doing or not enjoy what she's doing so th- that's how you do it you 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 have the guardians sign off on the on the consent form and as we were talking about earlier Lonnie Sue bears a strong resemblance to HM um whose name was actually Henry Molaison and um, as you mentioned, he lost his hippocampi in 1953, um, as well as some of the surrounding temporal lobes. Um, and he's a particularly interesting case as relates to Lonnie Sue, because he's been the subject of many book-length works and scientific studies himself. And there was a particularly contentious one that came out in 2016 called Patient HM, A Story of Memory, Madness, and Family Secrets by yeah. Luke Dietrich. Yes. And a large excerpt appeared in the New York Times magazine in which Dietrich suggested that Suzanne Corkin, the scientist who had spent most of her life studying HM, had attempted to suppress scientific information about a previously unreported brain legion, intended to shred files related to him, had not necessarily had his best interests at heart when it came to things like next of kin and power of attorney. Um, scientists in the field were very shocked, and more than 200 of them signed a letter rebutting the ar- article's allegations, and Dietrich then rebutted that rebuttal. Your book does not address these allegations, but they highlight some of the differences and the difficulties that scientists run into when working with people who can't consent. What do you think of issues like these? How do scientists deal with cases like HM and with Lonnie Sue? What kind of safeguards are there for them? Well, so I don't know that there are any um, official uh, objective safeguards that, that have been established. You know, in, in Lonnie Sue's case, um, as I say, uh, it, it's absolutely clear to me and to the scientists that they, uh, that the mother and the sister had uh, and that the sister still has Lonnie Sue's best interests at heart. I have no doubt that if he had, uh, that if she had uh, been upset or, or unwilling to do these psychological tests or these neuroscientific tests, that they would have forced her to do it. I just, it's, that is totally in, incompatible with these two women that I've come to know. So in the, you know, I, case by case, I guess is, is the, is the question. And in this case, it, I don't see any evidence, um, that this is an irresponsible thing that they're doing. Um, and, and in fact, uh, they have, uh, one of the things that Lonnie Sue has learned that's new is that this research might be valuable to science. And this is actually, she, she's reassured by this. She, she, she expresses, um, she asks about it now because she's now understands that this is, uh, is, uh, something that, that they believe. And she'll ask about it in every session. Will this help other people? People say, the scientists honestly say, yes, it really could. So, so, uh, I guess anecdotally, I have to say it seems like this is a good thing that's going on. It's very hard for me to address the the issues that Dietrich um, raises because you know he's done a lot more research, obviously, into that than I did. And his grandfather was, in fact, William Scoville, his grandfather or his great grandfather, who performed the surgery on HM. Yeah. So, so what does that bring to the mix? I don't know. I don't know. I mean. It, it, is he objective and reporting objectively on this case? Maybe, but maybe it's plausible that maybe not. Uh, does he have a personal uh, sense of guilt about what his family, uh, how his family contributed to this man's condition? I don't know. Um, his 
allegations about Suzanne Corkin, again, I don't know. I believe him when he says, well, that's what she told me, that, that she was going to shred or she did shred the, the, um, uh, the research or, or the notes. That doesn't necessarily mean she did that. I interviewed Suzanne Corkin and she struck me as somebody who was, um, pretty tough and pretty, um, hard nosed. And she barked at me a couple of times when I asked what she thought was a kind of a dumb question. Is it possible that she deliberately said something that was completely ridiculous just to, you know, get this guy's goat, the Luke Dietrich's goat and, and trick him into writings? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, the scientists I've talked to who read his excerpt say, say that's crazy. Crazy. I don't care what she said. She did not destroy notes. Um, so, you know, it's, hard, it's really hard to say. Right. What do you think or what do you hope that cases like Lonnie Sue's can tell us about the brain and add to in terms of the knowledge that HM's case kind of began? Well, they can they can take that sort of baseline uh, uh, of memory understanding that came out of his case and extend it because, uh, you know, as I, I, I've said earlier, um, clearly the, the, um, categories of memory and the sort of, um, textbook ideas about memory that came from his case were, si or were oversimplified. That's partly because nobody had any, ever asked any of these questions before. And so, um, the scientists were starting from scratch and, um, and partly because he was a very different person from Lonnie Sue. An analogy I use in the book is that, you know, William Harvey discovered the circulatory system and, and laid it out and explained it and showed what the heart did in, I think, the 1700s. But it wasn't until this century or, or the middle of the last century that we started doing heart transplants and understanding how to manage cholesterol and doing valve replacements and all of these these um, much more advanced things that are built on much greater knowledge that we've acquired since that initial fundamental case. And so HM gave us a baseline. Um, and Lonnie Sue is now helping extend that and asking subtler questions about memory and whether procedural memory and um, declarative memory are completely separate or whether they interact with each other in a healthy person. And um, what happens when the hippocampus is gone? What can the procedural memory still achieve? Is it the same as it used to be or is it different? What other kinds of memory are there besides these two main categories? And already uh, by the time uh, we, Lottie Sue's case came along, they, uh, neuroscientists had begun to understand that there were other kinds of memory, mostly unconscious memories. For example, um, when you see someone and they look familiar, but you can't place them, that's a, that's actually a different memory system. The sense of familiarity is housed outside the hippocampus in an adjacent um, set of tissues. And if the damage is limited to the hippocampus, you can or or limited to just to the hippocampus. You could still find things are familiar. You just have no idea why. And this actually was documented with HM that after uh, many, many test sessions, he began to recognize Suzanne Corkin, for example, who, as you said, spent decades studying him. He still could never say, say who she was, but she looked familiar. And she would say, well, you know, Henry, um, I look familiar to you. Where do you think you know me from? And he would invariably say, I think I went to high school with you because he knew that was a valid, a possibly valid answer. Um, and so he could at least satisfy himself that he was coming up with something reasonable, even though that wasn't at all why she was familiar. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about this fascinating case and this fascinating book. Well, thank you. I, I, 
I'm still following it, uh, the case, and and um, and it has not ceased to just uh, amaze me um, how how it is playing out and and what an extraordinary family this was uh, to re- respond that way to to this illness. We've linked to information about Michael Lemonick's book, The Perpetual Now: A Story of Amnesia, Memory, and Love, at scienceforthepeople.ca. We've also provided links to some of the scientific papers about Lonnie Sue Johnson, as well as the articles we discussed about the patient HM and the controversy surrounding his legacy. At scienceforthepeople.ca, you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave us a friendly review. We also have a Patreon page where you can send us a few bucks each month to help keep the lights on. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 